I woke up with sick in my tights and a chocolate Santa on my pillow. Yes, you did. Yes, <laughs> I do believe I stole the keys of Santa Claus. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and Clarky Cat remains in his cone of shame. He is punishing us by walking really close to the walls at night, which results in a terrifying <laughs> scraping noise and horrible nightmares. Oh, Clarky Cat. Oh, poor him, though. No one likes a cone of shame. It is quite amusing when he just still tries to get out the cat flap, though, and just, like, headbutts the door. Oh, poor sea cat. I'm Jennifer, and I've bought a memory phone mattress cover. Drops mic. <laughs> How are you finding it? Mate. I bought it because I'm trying to sell my flat at the moment because it is a one-bedroom flat and obviously I have a child now, so that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. So I've been sleeping on the sofa bed, which is dog shit, and then I started sleeping on a blow-up mattress on the floor because I thought that might be preferable. And my friend said, why don't you try a uh, memory foam mattress cover? So I thought, oh, why don't I? And it is fucking lovely. <laughs> Later on, I'm talking to life coach and author Michelle Elman about her new book, The Joy of Being Selfish and How to Set Boundaries. I attempt to herd gloriously chaotic cats, Lou Conran and <laughs> Sally Ann Haywood, as we chat booze, weighted blankets and their new podcast, Spit or Swallow. Now that's funny because I was thinking about weighted blankets just the other day and uh, I will be interested to hear. Lou uses hers slightly differently, but you can find out more about that later. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about sailing. That's right, sailing. And specifically Pip Hare, who completed the Vondi Globe last week. And in Rated or Dated, we are having a torrid time with our towel rails as we watch 1991's Sleeping with the Enemy. Hat montage! But first, <laughs> reason, arseholes, and unreasonable arseholes. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we deliver you the week's news with the enthusiasm of a Tory MP on the sticky floor of their local Weatherspoons. I don't know about the proximity of Tory MP, the word sticky, and Weatherspoons has made me feel a bit bilious, Jen. It should, to be fair. Now, Mick, can I take you back in time by a couple of weeks to the origins of this story? Yes. Sorry, yes, I will make you live it all over again the last two weeks, that is, because it's actually quite important. Let me take you back to January the 29th, when Minister for Equalities, Kemi Badenoch, tweeted a thread about how unfairly she'd been treated by HuffPost journalist Nadine White after she contacted Badenoch's office asking for comment on a story. The story was about Badenoch not appearing in a cross-party video by black MPs encouraging take-up of the COVID vaccine. White had asked why and gave Badenoch's office a clear deadline to reply and she chased up the failure to respond with another email. Now I know this because Badenoch herself tweeted screenshots of White's emails to her 39,000 followers in which she criticised White for spreading disinformation. What? <laughs> <laughs> What? Because none of us would even have fucking known about it if she hadn't tweeted it. But anyway, which she said was, and I quote, a sad insight into how some journalists operate. Sad insight into how some journalists operate by checking the facts of a story. Absolutely outrageous. Cunts. Sorry, that was a big C-bomb up top. (laughs) It felt gratuitous, but I still enjoyed it. Me too. Now, I wouldn't want to be accused of the same, so it's worth noting that Badenoch did have a good excuse for not appearing in the video. She's taking part in and promoting vaccine trials. 
A reason that could have been highlighted by HuffPost had her office done its job properly and responded to White's emails. Indeed. Still, why let reason get in the way of being an asshole? <laughs> Jen, it's just a mantra for so, so, so many people. I agree. Oh, don't even get me started on Meghan Markle. Not on her, on the people talking about her. But anyway, that's mm. a different story. Mm. White was subsequently hounded into making her profile private, a point which was highlighted by her editor Jess Brammer, who has quite rightly stood by her. It's also worth mentioning, as Brammer did, that White, who is herself black, has written a lot about the disproportionate impact of COVID on the black community and recently lost her own sister to the virus. So, back to present day, and in the last two weeks, no apology has been made for Badenoch's tweets, least of all by Badenoch herself, who instead gave an interview with her local paper, the Saffron and Walden Reporter, doubling down on her behaviour. In the meantime, Conservative MP Neil O'Brien wrote a piece defending Badenoch, while the government's own adviser, Samuel Kasumu, threatened to resign over an administration which he said was pursuing, and I quote, a politics steeped in division. In his resignation letter, which he later retracted, he suggested Badenoch may have broken the ministerial code and said her actions were not okay or justifiable, but somehow nothing was said. Still nothing has been said, and still Badenoch's tweets remain on her timeline. (sighs) I know. This is an extremely worrying situation and should make us very concerned about how this government views the free press because it is an attack on the free press. Yep. Understandable that government would want to do this given they're doing a frankly fucking terrible job, I would say, at everything, apart from giving (laughs) vaccines to organisations which have made a great job of delivering them. Understandable that they would want to though it is widely regarded as undemocratic if you actually do it. Oh, it's such a horrible mess. I made very, very personal, I think. There's no doubt that Badenoch has faced loads of racism, which is horrendous. But there's no excuse then to start a pylon for someone who is literally just trying to do their job to the most accurate measure of being a journalist. Like... That is how you journalist. That's yeah. how you do it. <laughs> she, she's journalisting, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay, Jen, let's move on. Quick question. Are you as good at maths as you are at a Russian accent? Sadly not, no. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to start with some basic percentages. So okay. what is half as a percentage? It's 50%. I'm quite good at percentages, actually. It's good. Not okay, well, to show you know, off or anything. A bit smug, but this is where it yeah. gets a bit tricky. What yeah. is... Overwhelming majority, the people have spoken. Sovereignty, blue passports, bendy bananas, I love Nigel, shut it, Ramona, as a percentage. Oh, I don't know. I'm interested, though. 52, 52%, wasn't it, Jen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, interesting then that headlines have abounded, announcing that, quote, half of UK exporters are struggling with post-Brexit rules regarding trading with the EU. And by half, they mean 49%. So really, the headline should be reporting that the overwhelming majority of UK (laughs) exporters are happy in our post-Brexit utopia. No problems here, mate. But I do, of course, jest, for there are so, so very many problems here, mate. According to a survey from the British Chambers of Commerce, UK companies are facing extra costs, delays in shipments to and from the continent, mountains of new paperwork, a drop in trade flow, increasing difficulties at borders, and mass confusion about whether particular rules apply or not, or 
teething troubles, as Boris Johnson put it. Thank you, Brussels, eh? Well, no, actually. We became a third country and therefore have to abide by the rules we agreed to Mm. and indeed helped to write when we were part of the EU. Excuse me, I just need to take a sip of my champagne and let off this party popper. (laughs) Because in the latest twist in the what those who voted remain really wanted saga, some sad-faced Brexiteers are claiming that, and I am about to quote from a Twitter account, I know. The core, which has 49.7 thousand followers... Half of the UK, the remainder half, has been willing our exporters to fail for years. Now, as the pandemic takes its toll on everyone's trade and the EU put obstacles in our way, smug Romaniacs gloat, rush for the champagne and celebrate like they've just won the lottery. Are you fucking (laughs) shitting me? Yeah, I really, I don't want to get my post. I fucking hate getting my post. Good, I'm glad. Uh, I I don't want to be a stickler for details, but half of the UK... I wish if we'd been half of the UK instead of whatever percentage overwhelming minority, the people haven't spoken, subjection, maroon passports, straight bananas, Nigel is a wanker, please listen Brexiteers, is we might not be in this giddy mess. I mean, I can't even actually sip on champagne because it's all fucking stuck at Calais. What an incredible bit of reverse psychology all that Project Fear stuff was, eh? Because we voted Remain, not because a union with the EU made us stronger and gave us, ooh, off the top of my head, human rights, animal rights, decent farming rather than chlorinated chicken, integrated financial rights, easy trade, the single market and less arguments about fucking fishing, but because we (laughs) wanted the UK to slowly collapse like a souffle in a cupboard. Correct. Clearly, we are only two months into our brave new world. And I sincerely, sincerely hope that these issues, because of course there were bound to be a whole host of problems to overcome with such massive change, I hope they're ironed out. As far as the ramifications of Brexit are concerned, I would bloody love to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's... Oh, fucking hell. I have to say, and um, I don't want to, like, I don't want to do the, like, scaremongering thing here. And it's not, like, a dire situation or anything like that, but I have noticed in the last few weeks that the cupboards are quite a bit barer at my local Sano's. And I don't think that's because of COVID. I think that's because of Brexit. There must be an effect. I mean, I think it's just, it's a fact, isn't it? Stuff's getting held up. There yeah. are odd spaces. It's not its not like in the first lockdown no. where there were like, <laughs> looked like zombies had cleared the shelves. But yeah. there are definite spaces in supermarkets. Also, fucking A, great. We're, uh, we're failing <laughs> as a nation. Cheers, <laughs> Mick, would you like some good news? Oh, yes, please. Now, I was hoping this story would have had a happy ending by now, so I'm taking the unorthodox move of making Stella Creasy the good news. She is the good news. I'm on board. Now, the reason for this is because she's fucking excellent and she is, again, kicking the government's ass over its treatment of women. Specifically, for passing new legislation that provides maternity cover for its own ministers, which was prompted by the pregnancy of Attorney General Suella Braverman, who they'd like to return to her job afterwards. <laughs> Lucky her. <laughs> but, but not to all MPs. So that means, it's just again, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So again, not to Stella Creasy, who has announced that she is pregnant at nine weeks, having previously suffered from a number of miscarriages before she gave birth to her daughter, Hester. And I actually cried a little bit when I was writing this and I feel a bit emotional again now because I just think that is so 
unbelievably brave and I hate it when people say oh aren't they brave when they admit to like difficult things having happened in but their it life, is but amazing I... and it's because like Stella I'm going to call her by her first name she's a friend of the show sure. and, I, I, and I love her and I think it's because Stella doesn't have to do that and she's doing it so no, she can it... make a point for all women not just for yeah. herself and yeah that is amazing so she says that she is prepared to go to court over this because it's a form of indirect discrimination. And she added, as a backbencher, none of these provisions will apply to myself. It's still very unclear what I can tell my constituents they can get in terms of cover. Mm-hmm. So she is the good news because we are so lucky to have her fighting our corner in a world that will not. Oh, yep. sorry. <laughs> a bit, um, oh, darling. Painful. And the fact that this is not a national scandal boils my piss. And I encourage you wholeheartedly to write to your MPs about it so that we can make sure there is a happy ending to this story as well. Absolutely. Well said, Jen. And I think it is hugely emotional and I do not have a bubba. Sorry, I'm very emotional. (laughs) What the listener couldn't see was that I was holding up pictures of kittens while Jen was trying to read that out. (laughs) More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we discuss whether a woman's place is in the home. Or at least over in Ireland, that very phrase... Sorry, what's that? I missed out the word archaic, you say? Yeah, fair enough. But that phrase is currently up for grabs. Right now, it is part and parcel of the Constitution of Ireland, but it is being discussed by the Citizens' Assembly. As it stands, Article 41.2 on the family, which has been in place in the Constitution since 1937, states, In particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall, therefore, endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. End quote. So the small joy there to be found in a state recognising all the fucking work women do in homes Mm. is massively undermined by the fact that any notion this might confer some, I don't know, financial obligation towards women has never been tested. In fact, it was only raised in one case, which was unsuccessful. And of course, the decades that have been between 1937 and now of raising boys and girls in schools, in church, in public life, to believe that men and women have very different social functions and that women should prepare themselves pretty much solely for marriage and motherhood can't be undone. Back to the linguistic matter at hand. The problem is there's very little consensus on what the what's commonly known as the a woman's places in the home clause should be changed to. If you're just shouting, delete it, then you, my friend, are one of us. And indeed, that is one of the two options being debated, although some people are worried that would mean there would be no recognition of caring within the Constitution. The second option is to tweak the language to make it gender neutral, referring to carers in the home rather than women. But again, it's unlikely to lead to any financial reparation for those carers. And those carers are overwhelmingly, sing it with me, sisters, Women, come on, Ireland, kiss that clause goodbye. It makes me very unhappy at the moment, as you've just heard, that the way we are being penalised for those domestic roles, it's making me very unhappy at the moment. Yeah, and you can't ignore that in this pandemic, within the different lockdowns, women's rights are just being set back. It's terrifying. There's not, there's not one woman in the COVID-19 cabinet. Is there not? No, not one. 
Oh my God. That explains exactly why childcare hasn't been taken into consideration. All of these things, and it's outrageous, even for a Tory government, that in 2020 we are where we are. Sorry, 2021. I think it has, yeah, it's really, really highlighted the glaring inequalities that are already there, like maternity, like, you know, all the stuff that's going on at the moment with pregnant then screwed, taking the government to court. It's really, really highlighted all of that. I, I cannot believe that this isn't a source of scandal. God bless him, Marcus Rashford, obviously, lovely guy. What he's done is amazing and, and you know, children not fucking eating is a scandal. But this is this is a scandal as well. This yep. needs fucking newspaper coverage. This needs headlines. This needs people writing to their MPs about it. This needs sorting. But it's the same as it ever was to an extent in that when it comes to women, it's always like, look, can you not see we're busy with other stuff? We'll get to you. We'll get to you. And, you know, wait your turn. And actually, I think what is positive is women are getting really fucking sick of being told to wait their turn. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by award-winning comedians, excellent humans, friends of Biggins and fellow podcasters, Lou Conran and Sally Ann Haywood. Hello, Lou. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. Hello, Sally Ann. Hello, Mickey. How are you? Well, you're all right. You just, you just answered Lou, so I should listen. <laughs> yeah. should Imagine I? if yeah. I changed dramatically within that yeah, period of time. Very- <laughs> you know, I, I went into a shop once in New York and the you know how they always go hey how are you doing and the guy said that as I went in and he went hey how are you doing and I went oh I'm fine thanks and then literally seconds later he came back up and he went hey how are you doing and I went yeah I'm, I'm fine I was fine a couple of seconds ago and I'm still fine <laughs> and then he went well you know something's changed like he had an answer for that wow well. <laughs> you can't there tell me go. your face though Sally can you because sometimes you've got that face of don't come near me and <laughs> but sometimes goes. that face means Oh, I'm concentrating. Yeah. There's kind of like quite a hard division, really. So sometimes I don't know what's going on with you. Well, that must be really fun because you two have started doing a podcast together, I assume, yeah. over Zoom. And that podcast is called Spit or Swallow. It sounds rude. Put me straight. It could be rude. You can translate it how you want. But it's basically, it's a wine, what well, a drink chasing podcast, isn't it, Lou? And yeah. um, we side as the hosts and the experts i think i might add oh, yeah i think we are now aren't the, we? <laughs> yeah the drink of choice of our guest is a spit or a swallow yeah and, and actually yeah, the word spit or swallow if you think that's rude mickey then that's the way your brain works well that is it? true in my defense i am a cliche and i have a tattoo of a swallow on one of my arms <gasps> and the amount of times oh. i've been asked whether that is have an indicator or, or whether I've been in prison, yeah. Oh. I haven't, I haven't. Oh. Maybe well, after this isn't... recording. <laughs> yeah. You just, you just like swallows. Swallowing. Oh. Swallowing. Swallowing. <laughs> see, now your brains are doing the yeah. rude thing. Well, you see, ours are pretty much in the gutter most of the time anyway. And oh, you're you speak to... yourself, Lou. All right, OK. <laughs> I am, I'm speaking for myself. It's good to clarify that up at the top, that Lou is, in you're fact, welcome. speaking only for Lou Conran and will not be held responsible <laughs> for anybody else's words. 
You're welcome. I was imagining being um, interviewed on like, I don't know, something like some sort of serious news programme on, on Radio 4 and them saying, and we're going to talk to Sally Ann Haywood. Um, and Sally Ann's also got a podcast out called Spit or Swallow. And I just imagined that, like all of a sudden that having to be said in kind of serious news things. And then like, I don't know, I think I can't think of a serious news broadcaster that has to go with their podcast Spit or Swallow. I just, I really want, that's my aim is to have it said in a very serious place. Like, like today, this serious interview. I'm happy to be a gateway drug to Radio 4. Are you both genuine booze experts? Where where do you get your expertise from? Lidl. <laughs> that's where the expertise comes from, because that's who does the cheapest wines, but the nicest wines. And we have drunk a lot over the lockdowns, haven't we, Sally? We have. We've had some really nice wines as well. One guest, and it hasn't actually been aired yet, so I won't say who... wanted us to trial this beautiful um white burgundy and it was a specific village it came from and we foraged for it during lockdown and eventually i found one from the village but not the exact why in a local independent off-license and oh god it's delicious it was i think we are getting there though aren't we but the thing is we now know what will give us a hangover and what won't Um, that one didn't did it it didn't because it was so flipping expensive. Yeah, but it was. Uh, we didn't down it. That's why we didn't down it. Yeah. We just had time yeah. with it, and we were like, "Oh no, we're not going to waste this by pissing it up the wall." We are wine experts, aren't we, Sally? As in, we drink it. And that's it's it. funny. Nobody's yeah. come to us for any expertise, and they haven't no, offered us why. to be on their on their cookery programs to hear what wine yeah. we would put with what meal. Yet, yes. um, yeah, that's yeah. the key, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. We'll be on Saturday Kitchen swilling wine over Zoom with John Van Damme or somebody. I don't know why I said that. I don't know. I was thinking of a chef's name. I couldn't sleep the other week because my brain was too busy trying to remember what Jean-Claude Van Damme's nickname was. What was it? The Muscles from Brussels. Oh, oh yes. I yes. have no idea why I said Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't even know who he is. It's just the name that popped into my head. I, th- I was looking for a chef's name. I should he have said Gordon Ramsay. He was a martial was arts guy in a lot of kind of action movies. Oh. <laughs> well, muscles, every day is a learning day, isn't yeah. it? Muscles, you can cook muscles. So I there think you it's, go. Quite, it's quite telling in your relationship, your friendship, that, yeah. that Lou's dreaming of being on Saturday Kitchen with the muscles from Brussels. And Sally Ann <laughs> is looking forward to the time she's in a serious interview on Radio 4. Yeah. And having to yeah. say spit or swallow. I can't wait. <laughs> so talk me through how it all comes together on a podcast. Well, um, we invite the guest on, we introduce them. And uh, how do you, how do we describe it? I mean, we ask, oh. we, we love hearing about their drunk stories, their history. I mean, some, not everyone drinks alcohol, of course. We have no. to say that. We have to try and at least sort of tell people to act responsibly Mm-mm. well we don't though do don't we? follow we just, us no, no we don't but we keep forgetting because no. we're too pissed by the end of the podcast That's but basically we ask it. them <laughs> to tell us what they want to drink so we have to go out and get the booze that they want to drink with us they so recommend. that's yeah. yeah that gets us out the house doesn't it sally yeah Going yeah that's foraging true, yeah. for for booze I know obviously you've had our friend and indeed boss, the lovely Sarah Millican on, and you tried various things to do with Vimto, apart yes. from a hot Vimto, which was always my favourite way to drink it. She did have one, didn't she? Didn't, didn't she, she have a hot Vimto? Did she have a hot Vimto? Mm. Now you've think... said that. No, yes, she, she talked... did. Oh, she did, didn't she? Yeah. Because I think that she did. was her favourite, I think. Yeah. I think, yeah. from memory now. Yeah. 
I mean, yes, it's difficult yes. when you drink a lot to remember. <laughs> but yeah, and the cheeky yes. Vimto's, I'd never had one before. I have to say, that was delicious. Is that Vimto and WKD? No, it's port and WKD. There's not even, there's no Vimto near it. No, no. But it's, it's pretty and It doesn't even get a sniff of Vimto. No, tastes like it though. It's lovely. And then we chat old drunk stories with people. The ones were Biggins. Oh my goodness. You need to listen to Biggins whilst eating good cheese and drinking a good glass of something delightful because it's champagne yeah got to have champagne with biggins oh my goodness all he does is just clunk name drop well i was with my best friend the (laughs) archbishop of canterbury clunk well i was with my best friend we were chatting to jean-claude van Van damme there he is again (laughs) yeah and then he's got this this tale of him and frank sinatra his tale of vomiting out the door of a fiat panda and it's just listening to his stories we could have chatted to him all night couldn't we sam yeah, and the stories are so so much fun as well. What you know, the the just the antics that people have got to, got up to drunk, and everybody's a different as well. Everybody's got a new story, a new situation, and it's yeah, just great fun. And also, we ask them hangover cures sometimes, don't we? Mm. We actually asked Biggins who what he'd have on his Christmas table. Oh, that was great oh as well. God, just hearing yeah. that, yeah, he should have been a Roman, shouldn't he? He should have been a Roman. Now, I've never been drinking with Sally Ann, and you know, hopefully at some point we can remedy this, but I have absolutely been drinking with Lou Conran. Most people have. I woke up with sick in my tights and a chocolate Santa on my pillow. Yes, you did. Yes. <laughs> I do believe I stole the keys of Santa Claus. No. We yeah. were out that night. I stole the keys of a bloke dressed as Santa. I forgot I had them. And then I think it was you, was it, that came going, oh, I think you need to give Santa's keys back now. Oh, <laughs> oh OK. And then you made us drink, what was it, the vodka, Prosecco and... Tramp yeah. salad it is. And it tramp was... salad. Yeah, tramp salad. It's gin, Prosecco ice and cucumber and elderflower cordial it sounds delicious sally but after 48 (laughs) of them and when you've been sick in your own tights uh, susan who uh, that was that was mickey i couldn't get to the toilet because susan was in there being sick in her own toilet normally it's susan that has to hold my hair back but that was the first time i think i've ever held a bucket under susan's head while you were vomiting in your tights and oh, i felt was really smug, smug. i was yeah. she was unbearable the next day oh, uh, it's bouncing around me. worth telling the listeners that tights are quite porous not the best yeah. thing to to vomit into not a great no. container oh, for liquid ingenia no, no they were they, they were opaque really... tights sally but still oh oh yeah. Oh well. Well, they that's did a collect good tip. the chunks, though, didn't they, Mickey? So that was good. Oh, it's horrific. You were so it's smug it's... the next day. I was until I sent you a me. load of photos of you with the Santas, and you had totally forgotten that you danced with all of the Santas. Yeah. Well, nobody needs to know that, do they? <laughs> During lockdown, when we were allowed to get together, so it wasn't lockdown. It was when it was lifted. She came here, and um, and I was really sick the next day, and Lou wasn't. She signed up to some accountancy app did all that honestly i was in bed for the whole day puking and sleeping and just trying to get over it and she was like don't worry and she was getting on with sorting her life out yeah smug conrad is basically like a reformed smoker isn't she she's just unbearable 
It's yeah. because it so rarely happens. <laughs> I've, in the first lockdown, lockdown part one, I got overly giddy. I had some champagne left over from Christmas. That's right, champagne from Lidl, £9. And um, I thought, oh, this ain't going to last long. So I thought, well, I'm just going to drink the champagne every night. And there was one night I drank all the champagne and then I had a bottle of wine. And this is on my own. And I spent the next day vomiting and I thought... Why have I done that to myself? Mm. But I blame lockdown, you see. But out of that negativity, this has arisen. So you have to look at everything as a positive, apart from results. But you have to look at everything in a really optimistic way, don't you? Definitely. I would like to know what has been your best drunk purchase. Oh, God. Oh, good question. Oh, Yes, well, I know I've seen all lose because they're ridiculous. (laughs) Um, I had had quite the addiction. It got to the point where I'd hear like a Pavlov's response. I'd hear a van pull up outside and I'd think, oh, God, what have I ordered now? (laughs) We had to get an intervention. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've had some really horrific frocks really horrific frocks one that makes me look like widow twanky one that looks makes me look like something for easter i need a bonnet with it i bought a ouija board so i could see when this is all gonna end yeah can't do it on your own though can you uh got some waxing beads that you put in the microwave i'm glad you said microwave wasn't sure (laughs) (laughs) uh what i'm gonna say is i don't recommend you doing that there we go. Uh, nearly pulled one of my lips off. What else have I bought? Oh, Sally, what else have I bought? Everything. Duvet covers. Uh, weighted blanket. Oh, oh I bought a, a weighted blanket, nine kilograms. Absolutely delightful. When I'm with the gentleman caller and I don't want him to get out of bed, I just put the weighted blanket on him and he can't move. And I just think, I've got him. It's a bit like misery where he, I can't, he can't leave. Like a dolphin trapped in a, a trawler net. Yeah, you've not seen him. It, it's more like misery. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sally, you haven't bought that much, have you? Not as much as you. I bought a mattress. That was lovely. Oh, yeah, oh, that you were nearly was... sick on. Yeah, she bought, this mattress that... arrived, and then that was the day that we got hammered and she threw up everywhere. And Lucy kept every mattress, and I'd forgotten. I was like, oh, my God, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so she I did just... it on a side plate. Yeah, I did it over the, over the <laughs> edge of the bed. Um, mm. I have bought things like really nice shoes, which I'll never wear anywhere. Ooh, yeah. You know, Those just for my nice. living room. Yeah. yeah, things like that. I've got. I'm waiting for a jacket to arrive, which I bought secondhand. I've bought bits, but yeah, no, I, the addiction hasn't been quite as bad as lose. I have to say. Yeah. I mean, at the very beginning of lockdown, when I felt overwhelmed, we all felt overwhelmed, and I thought I, I felt about ninety when everyone was making content online, and I didn't know how to. And I knew nothing and I kept ordering strange things that I thought might help make content online off Amazon. I remember that at the beginning and I just kept ordering more and more stuff that I didn't know how to use. So that's all gone on eBay and there's left. (laughs) So you kind of put yourselves at the mercies of your guests, given that they get to choose the booze. So I wondered, is there a booze from your past that you would not revisit? Oh, I I don't think I have one that I wouldn't revisit. I mean, I've been sick on tequila, but I still like it. Sometimes if I eat uh, one of those crinkle, ready-salted crisps, I have a memory of chucking all those up once in Spain. (laughs) That's not alcohol, is it? That was because of alcohol. I stopped drinking gin for about two days. Um, (laughs) And that that was after I went on a, a writing retreat 
I say retreat, it was three days away in a cottage in the middle of bumfuck nowhere with two other comedians. And we got overly giddy and we drank all of the gin. And then the next morning, I decided to make a cheese omelette in a cup in the microwave, which uh, I've never done that before. I don't know why I did it. And um, Were the wax beads in there? <laughs> probably, because the consistency of it on the return journey, let's say, was re- it basically it formed like what looked like you know those sponges that that you use for car windscreens it looked like that Ooh, in the cup like a chamois a chamois leather well no like one of those sponges a really thick oh, sort okay. of mass of egg and cheese and i slid it out of the cup and i ate it like an apple <laughs> and about 20, <laughs> 20 minutes later it returned and it looked exactly the same as it did as it had gone in and i thought i don't think I should drink anymore. <laughs> so I had, I had two days off. But but that fruit tropical that fruit salad or whatever it was that you made us drink. She made us drink. Mickey yeah. was I can't not for me ever again. That no. I told you not sort to eat like the it, cucumber, yeah. and it had been. Uh, I know because it was infused it was. in the gin. It was yeah. Perno and black for me. Oi. You've had some nights out in the 80s. <laughs> oh, and, At 13. I went, yeah. I went to um, Monaco, all right, uh, for a friend's, my mate Jane on the inbreaths. Oh, yeah, you're all right. Her um, uh, 40th birthday, and we had pastis, pastis, you know, that licorice thing that you pour water in and it goes yellow. Oh, oh no. Oh, oh, do you not know that? The friend, it's no. like fennelly and licorice and it's disgusting yeah. but that's all we oh. drank oh anything like that's sort of aniseedy like oh do you like, like, I like perno ouzo i like an ouzo although i wouldn't buy it in i wouldn't buy it in <laughs> i mean if i was on holiday and they you know and it was at the end of a meal and they were, said do you want an ouzo sometimes they bring them out whether whether or not you've asked for them don't they in some countries with the tray and the bill they bring you a couple of shots i'd yeah, I'd, have that. I'd, I'd enjoy that i'd go hmm, that was nice i'd rather eat lou's omelet yeah really, <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. the sentence <gasps> i never thought i'd hear mickey say <laughs> wow. women women tell me who you've got coming up please we have got coming up are we allowed to say i suppose we are aren't we yeah, i mean it's your podcast it's absolutely yeah. up to you Friday, we are recording with Trevor Simon. Swinging your pants. Emma Kennedy. Emma Kennedy. And yeah, she was um, great fun. Oh, my God, it's hysterical, oh. isn't it, that Her one? Her stories, yeah. while well, she's sober, are amazing. So I can only imagine you put some booze in Yeah, her. great uh, raconteur. So it comes out every Friday, but where can people listen slash find out more about Spit or Swallow, please? We are on all the platforms, really. Audio Boom, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah, I think wherever you get else. your podcast from. But my, Audio Boom has the links to it all, doesn't it? And we have, um, we're on all the socials, yeah. Yes. At, no, it's underscore or swallow, or is it or underscore swallow? We should have done this. <laughs> or, under, under or underscore swallow, that's Twitter. Instagram. But if you put is, spit or swallow in, you'll find it yeah. easily. Instagram's Instagram. Or underscore swallow underscore podcast. I mean, I'm excited to edit that bit. That was an absolute car crash. Yeah, no. Thank you. It was, yeah. But do you know what? You're welcome. (laughs) Put the name in, you'll find it somewhere. Where can we find out what you're up to as individuals, please? Also, we do Insta Lives on a Friday night where Lou and I drink with people. Just suddenly remembered that. But as individuals, what... um, 
We actually, what, what do, well, God, you'd have to come to Bristol really and look through my window to find out what I'm up to. I'm on Instagram at Lou Conran and Twitter at Lou Conran and my website, louconran.com. That's it really, but there's nothing much to there's report. There's a theme. Sorry. I'm at, yeah. at Sally Ann Comedy on Insta and Twitter and my website's sallyannhayward.co.uk. It has, as I expected, been an utter delight. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for so having lovely us. to you. Thank you for having yeah. us. Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. I'm joined via Zoom by Michelle Elman, life coach and author of the new book, The Joy of Being Selfish, which was published on February the 4th. Hello, Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So your book, The Joy of Being Selfish, what drew you to this subject matter? It's weirdly the topic I've been passionate about for about two years so when I started seeing it became a trending topic and buzzword I was like oh incredible except the education part of it kind of got lost on the way which is always the case anytime anything's trending it's there's a big conversation around it but when it comes to the practical details of how do you set boundaries there was not a lot of information around that and so that was the part which I felt frustrated around because I'd become known online talking about boundaries and really nicely a lot of my followers started calling me the queen of boundaries and they would ask me do you have a resource on boundaries and I would go I I can't give you anything because everything I learned about boundaries came from a human and, and that human was my own life coach and so it was that frustration and because I'm a life coach myself I was trying to find a book on boundaries and every book on boundaries I found, I just disagreed with. And I was like, it's not how I set boundaries. It's not how I learned how to set boundaries. So it's that saying, if you want that to exist in the world and it doesn't exist, then it's your duty to write it. And so that's where it came about was I had gone through this long journey of setting boundaries and I believed I had come to the end of it, which as, as far along as you could possibly, because I don't know if you ever come to the end of it, but I have boundaries in my life. I have good, strong boundaries in my life. And so why not be the person who teaches other people to have them in their own life? I want to start at the start of this book. And the opening page refers to self-care. And that's that's what sort of underpins everything you're talking about. So self-care has become something of a sort of buzzword. Well, two words, but you know what I mean. And it can mean really like anything from therapy to painting your nails, So what does self-care mean to you? So I dismiss the side that's painting your nails, get a massage. And I mean, that's pampering, whatever you want to call it. That's not self-care to me. Self-care to me is making sure your taxes are done on time, making sure that you have people in your life who respect you. It's the practical side and essentially taking care of yourself. And what I found was, 
self-love and self-care everyone can get on board with but again they're very ethereal concepts they're not anything you can really pin down but when you talk about something as practical or literal as boundaries then they're like well you've gone too far but actually if you don't have any boundaries in your life how the hell are you meant to have self-love how the hell are you meant to take care of yourself at all because you're surrounded by people who are almost proof that you shouldn't do any of those things because if you have people in your life who are speaking to you in a certain way are treating you with disrespect then you can't have those elements in your life because anytime you try to build yourself up, you'll have people around you who tear yourself down. Okay, the examples you gave, like doing your tax return, is, is just not what I think a lot of people would think when, when they think of the concept of, of self-care. So that's quite interesting to me. So you argue in the books that selflessness isn't actually selfless at all and rather that we derive value from other people liking us and they like us because essentially we put them before ourselves can you tell me a little bit more about that so i think a lot of selfless acts actually come out of insecurity and not from this desire to be good or a good human or a good person but actually because they get so much self-esteem from being praised for being a good person but all of that depends on the amount you give and how much you empty yourselves out in order to be of service to others because that's what a selfless person is always described as is someone who gives to others but even the word selfless itself it means like the absence of self why do we have to disregard ourselves in order to be considered good by society in your mind, what, what do you think a boundary is? So a boundary is what is and isn't acceptable about how someone treats you. It's also the line between who you are and who the world wants you to be. Self-care, self-love, self-worth, they're all things that men are kind of socialised to feel for themselves and value inherently in themselves. So women are not really socialised to value themselves. They're not really socialised to put themselves first. They are socialised to be carers. So I would imagine, but do correct me if I'm wrong, that it's probably a bit harder for women sometimes to set boundaries. Is that right? Yes, and I think women are also trained to be more accommodating and so as a result we are more concerned with the responses we receive when we set boundaries and are much more likely if we receive a negative response to doubt ourselves than to stand strong in our boundaries and restate them whereas in terms of the worth thing one of the ways we measure worth in our society is money unfortunately but that is a fact and even when you look at work situations how men pitch for jobs, how they demand fees. And of course, there's a gender pay gap that exists societally and systemically. But in terms of how we ask for that worth to be appreciated, financially compensated, all of those things, there's definitely a differentiator within that. So what about the perception of women who are able to routinely successfully set boundaries? You say in the book, it flies in the face of what we're told makes us a good person. Yes, and especially women, because in order to be a good person, you do need to be in the service of others and you need to put other people before yourself. And you need to dismiss your needs in order to take care of everyone else around you. Whether that's being a good wife, good employee, good mother, all of those things, good friend, they all come before looking after yourself. And so one of the things I think is important is that being selfish isn't an optional thing when it comes to self-love. To actually reorder your priority list, you do need to put your needs before someone else. 
And that is the definition of selfish. The definition of selfish is the disregard of other people's needs. So let's say you don't want to work at 10 p.m. at night and your boss sends you an email, you are disregarding your boss's need for that email to be replied to in order for you to prioritize your need to have a restful evening. So it's not an optional thing. And that's where it's really important that we don't stop at the line of a concept of self-love and self-care, but actually start practically putting it into place, which any change in your life is scary. So to talk about self-love and self-care as like lofty topics and something, a belief system is fine. But when your action and behavior does not follow, it's kind of an empty promise. And so that's why I'm so passionate about the boundaries part, because it's the practical side of it. It's the part that you actually have to implement. And there is no change that's going to occur in your life without the scary element and the difficulty of making a change in your life. And so that's why I also talk about the fact that boundaries are messy when you first set them. You don't have the language skills. You've never used that language, even if you did know what to say. And you also don't know how to feel. So you don't know when your boundaries are crossed. And so it's a very much a learning curve, but you have to go through that uncomfortable process in order to get to a level where you can build up your self-esteem. So you say that boundaries revolutionised your life. Can you tell me a little bit about how um, how you got to the point where you decided you were going to set these boundaries for yourself? So I was a people pleaser and a pushover. And there was a point in my life where even my boyfriend said to me, I used to be at his beck and call. And that was simply because I didn't reply to his text for an hour. It wasn't the fact that he thought it. It was the fact that he had the audacity to say that to my face and not think it would receive a negative reaction, Mm. which, to be honest, it didn't. I laughed it off. I thought it was a joke. It was only in hindsight, once that added to another event in my life where I got into a big fight with all of my friends. And one of the things that was said was, Do you know how much we tolerate having to be your friend? I mean, I moved out of that apartment that day, but it was this moment where you just like looked around at your life and kind of reassessed everything. It went, my boyfriend takes me for granted and my friends tolerate me. (laughs) How have I got here? And so it was kind of this moment of having to like uproot my entire life. I spent a year or two years setting boundaries if they didn't respect them, cutting them out. But it was starting from the bottom. I was the definition of a person with no boundaries. And as much as I like that is their responsibility and they have a duty to take accountability for it, there was also my part to it as well. And my part to it was that I kept these people around for years and I never stood up for myself. I never spoke about it. I never spoke about myself with respect. And when those moments happened, I never said, do not speak to me like that or that's unacceptable. And so... It was kind of this wake up call. And I kind of believe that's how all change happens in life is you wake up one morning and go, how did I get here? And that's when I started learning boundaries and going, something has to change. It was funny. Everyone makes fun of Instagram quotes, but I did see an Instagram quote the next day, which said something like you deserve people who celebrate you and don't just tolerate you. And I think it was the word tolerate that got my attention because of what that friend had said the day before. And it was just this moment of going, I want to surround myself with people who celebrate me, who support me. And I don't believe anyone deserves to feel like the people in your life make you feel unloved. I mean, you can't see my face, listeners, but it was it was a face of horror because I have to say, Michelle, by anyone's metric, it's telling a friend that you 
tolerate them is vile. It's That's a horrible thing to say to someone. So I'm glad that you don't hang out with those people anymore. Let's talk about boundary setting now. The whole book is about how to do this, basically, based on your own experience. So the first part of the book, you talk about barriers to boundary setting, and then you go on to talk about the different stages of boundary setting. So can we sort of talk through the process as it were of setting boundaries yeah so when it comes to the obstacles I just think it's really important to narrow down so I give six reasons in the book why you believe your obstacles are in your way and the reason why you would say something like I can't set boundaries Um, and if you don't know why you can't set boundaries you can't fix that problem so I highlight the obstacles as a way to be like here are your fixes for all of these six problems And then I go into boundary setting. And because boundary setting is so difficult when you're used to people pleasing or used to being a pushover, the first two boundaries are simply one word boundaries. And so if you can't set a full boundary, saying the word no or the second boundary that I teach is the word ouch is actually demonstrating that your boundaries are being crossed. So you might not be at the stage where you can set a boundary, but you can be at the stage where you can recognize oh, that was crossing my boundaries. And like a lot of times it doesn't lead to someone being cut out. But another example I use in the book is um, a friend that mid-argument said, well, you're never going to find a boyfriend if you're this unforgiving. And it was it was in the heat of the moment. I'm still friends with the person. But it was just one of those things like, ouch. And I just went, ouch. Because sometimes that's all that is necessary. And then you pause and... I mean, to this day, she massively regrets it. She apologised. And it happens where within friendships, within romantic relationships, within families, we say hurtful things all the time. But if you do not have a moment where you go, no, that's not okay," or ouch, don't speak to me like that, then you can't fix it. And it doesn't need to be a make or break situation, especially if someone responds appropriately. So if someone responds with a, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have said that, it won't happen again. That's a very different reaction to, why are you making such a big deal about it? It was only a joke. And that kind of reaction is often more telling of the relationship than the comment in itself, because someone's actually able to move forward or want to take accountability for what they've said. And so it's moments like that, which I think give you the tools to set the first stages of boundaries. Can you give me an example of what a barrier to boundary setting might look like? So I think fear of being disliked is a huge barrier to boundary setting. And I think it generally comes down to the fact that when you're setting a boundary and thinking about the other person, it is never going to work. Your boundaries are about you. And so it's not about the other person being a bad person or even about their behavior particularly. It's about what you need and what's not happening in the situation to meet your needs. And so when you set the boundary and let's say it's you declining an event and all the thoughts go in your head like, oh, they might never invite me again. What if they hate me because I said no? All of those thoughts are about them. So you need to return the conversation back to you. How did you feel the moment you said no? And there's a section on <gasps> gasps, cutting people out. Okay. <laughs> and, and I'm guessing that is kind of like the, the final stage, really, yes. in, in, in the boundary setting. So if you're getting to the stage where you're cutting someone out, what you say is that should be because you have come to an understanding 
that you can't provide each other with what you need. So you, you should never set boundaries in anger and you should never set boundaries in a heat of a moment. You take time away, you process your emotions, you realise what stuff's yours, what stuff's the other person, and then you go and set that boundary, whether that's cutting someone out or not, but go and set that boundary in an emotionally neutral way. And so if you do get to the stage where you cut someone out, obviously that's quite a hard thing to do because you might be talking potentially about a really long-standing relationship here. How do you come to the point of realisation that that is something that you need to do and, and how do you do that? I think when the, the bad outweighs the good in the simplest way, when someone is making you feel bad or the number of times you leave their company and you have negative feelings inside your body around what has just been said. But for me, it's also you set boundaries and you hold your boundary and you reaffirm your boundary and it's still continuously not being respected. There comes a point where it's like they're showing you the writing on the wall. Are you going to make a decision about it? And yes, it really hurts. And I think this is the thing, like every friend I've cut out at some point in my life, I have missed them. And that missing them or the grief that comes with it, because you can grieve persons not just simply because around death, but grief also exists around oh, yeah, any loss. Yeah. Mm. So if you grieve an old friendship, that doesn't mean you made the wrong decision. It just means there was a period in your life where they had an impact on your life. And now every time you think of that love, you also think of that loss. And so not using that missing someone or that grief as proof that you made the wrong decision, I think is really important and allowing yourself that grief. Do you think that without exception, we should always put ourselves first? I think that it, the whole point of setting boundaries and taking care of yourself and being selfish is you get to choose. And it is no one's right to tell you what is and isn't okay. So if you want to put your partner's beliefs above your own and not set your boundaries, that's your prerogative. This whole book is not about me saying you should have my boundaries. It's about saying you decide your boundaries, but make sure that's an active decision, that you've actually made that as a decision and not just let it happen to you. You've got a podcast, haven't you, Michelle, yes. called In All Honesty. Could you just tell us what the podcast is about? It's all of the voice notes that my followers have sent me asking questions as a life coach. I'm answering them in a Q&A style and basically doing life coaching, but in a pod podcast format. I'm quite passionate about making life coaching accessible and so I do a lot of that on social media but I like the fact that podcast is more long form and I can actually get into the answers properly and in a deep way. And where can we find you on, on social media? I'm at Scar Not Scared on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok and you can buy my book The Joy of Being Selfish. Yes, The Joy of Being Selfish is available now. Michelle, it has been very interesting chatting to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we tell the patriarchy we don't like the cut of its jib as we discuss all things women's sport. That's right, guys, a rare sailing reference on this podcast. Shut up, there's another one on the way and rated or dated in a minute. But first of all, let's give a warm round of applause to British sailor Pip Hare, who became the eighth woman ever to complete the round-the-world boat race, the Vendée Globe, last week, finishing in 19th place. Hare arrived in Les Hables de Lomme 
I think my attempt at pronouncing that is actually more embarrassing than crying earlier in this podcast. 95 days after setting off, just short of her mission to be Ellen MacArthur, who did the same in 94 days and 4 hours back in 2000. But let's talk about the Von D Globe for a minute because it's no mean feat, let me tell you. The Von D Globe solo around the world race started in 1968 and has since since rebranded from the Golden Globe as it was then known and takes place every four years. Since 1989 until the 2020 edition, only 71 people have managed to cross the finishing line. It's known as the Everest of the Sea. So, perhaps it's unsurprising that Pip says of missing her target, I've no regrets. I started with a personal loan from the bank and I built this campaign up out of nothing. Speaking to ITV News shortly after finishing, she said she'd not quite been able to comprehend what the voyage meant. The 47-year-old said, I'm the eighth woman in history to finish this race. It's one of the toughest out there. I'm so proud to have made it to the finish line. And then going on to detail the final hours of her journey, she said the last six hours had been the most stressful of the race after breaking a line holding the keel in place. I'm not going to pretend to know what a keel is. It's part of a boat, guys, Uh, even though I do myself have a little bit of sailing experience. Anyway, she said it had been an incredibly challenging voyage, highlighting the brutal environments, but said she'd never thought she wouldn't be able to finish, though at times she did doubt her ability to perform. Sounds familiar, right, lads? But if you can't get a bit of imposter syndrome when you're fixing a rudder at Point Nemo, FYI the furthest point from land in the planet, and a procedure you would normally be doing with your boat out of the water, fuck it, when can you? In a lovely little interview with her parents, who were asked just how terrified they'd been while the daughter undertook this feat, and I urge you to look it up, it is ITV, but don't let that put you off, her parents have lovely comedy timing. Her mum said, we know she knows what she's doing, and she will do it. Congratulations, Pip, I am in awe. Now, before I sign off for this week, I'd like to give a quick tip of the hat to Arsenal legend and football pundit Ian Wright. I know, he's a man, how dare he, who's spoken up this week in defence of his female colleagues. Asked on the Game Changers podcast about the abuse the likes of Alex Scott and Karen Carney receive on social media just because they don't have willies. It wasn't phrased exactly like that, just, you know, by the way. Wright said he was embarrassed by how much shit they get, adding, When women come on, they know they're under amazing pressure because people are looking to find fault with anything they say, so they're very, very prepared. He added, They've made me up my game. So there you are, lads. They might not fill stadiums, but they are making the quality of match of the day exponentially better for you. P.S. Cock off. That's all from me this week. If you'd like to tell me about a time you saw a man say something particularly insightful on Sky Sports, you can do so by tweeting me at InspiraGen. I'm off next week, but I'll be back with more women's sport the week after that. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film led to a mind-boggling conversation, which we may or may not get round to explaining, about pies and vaginas? (laughs) How are we going to explain that? This week, we watched Sleeping with the Enemy, released in the US on February 8th, 1991, which makes it 30 years old. Now, Mick, Wikipedia calls it a romantic psychological thriller, which is quite the niche genre. (laughs) Wow. But then, is this a bit of a niche film, I ask you? Directed by Joseph Rubin, who hasn't made anything else I'm personally familiar with, and starring Julia Roberts as Laura Burney, or should we call her Sarah Waters? Laura is the abused wife of psychopathic Martin, played by Patrick Bergen, who rules with an iron fist if she doesn't keep his cupboards fastidiously tidy and gets a right cob on if the towel rails are messy 
or she talks to the neighbours. He doesn't, however, have any problem with taking his wife, who he thinks can't swim, out on a late-night sailing jaunt with an unexplained dude in the middle of a storm. And lucky for her that he doesn't. Laura takes advantage of said yachting incident, because haven't we all, to start her life again (laughs) without him after faking her own death. After pitching up in what appears to be another time via a greyhound bus... (laughs) Yes, she does. She travels back to the past. What is it? Laura makes friends with Amdram enthusiast neighbour Ben, played by Kevin Anderson. And guess what? That friendship turns out to be what I'm going to call a fairly reluctant romance on Laura's part. More on that later. But can Laura... I've got time frame questions. Okay, interesting. But can Laura live happily ever after in the shadow of Martin or will he discover her and hunt her down? Laura, love, I could have told you that you weren't going to fool anyone by snipping off two inches of your hair. You're quite distinctive hair at that. (laughs) It was Robert's first major film since Pretty Woman, and IMDb gives it a score of 6.3 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, an approval rating of 20%. Oof. Empire Magazine called it a dumb TV movie in 2000. But it did all right at the box office, despite being panned by critics. Uh, It's quite a weird film for a youngster to have enjoyed, but I have seen this Mm. film many, many times before, and I really liked it. I think I must have been between 12 and 14 when I first saw it, and it's another kind of pretty common ITV2 perpetual repeatee. Mick, had you seen this before? Yeah, I'd seen it before. I think I'd only seen it once, kind of around the time it came out. It was massively hyped when it came out. I it don't was a remember big deal. that. She was a big deal off the yeah. back of Pretty Woman, so it was a big deal. And I think Empire is it's very scathing in that review, but it's kind of fair. If it wasn't for Julia Roberts' presence, it is a TV movie. Well, let's get on to that in a minute. The first thing I want to talk about is the domestic violence storyline, which is obviously a, a, a major part of it, but... How do you think they dealt with it? There was a review by an American film critic, Roger Ebert, that said it's a slasher movie in disguise, an upmarket version of the old exploitation formula where the victim can run but she can't hide. Do you think that's fair? The Robert Ebert. I think he's got a point. I don't think it's a terrible film. I think some of it is a terrible film. But Julia Roberts is excellent in those opening scenes and as Laura Sarah shows her fear slash hatred slash sadness of Martin to the audience, but never to him, which is a surprisingly rare feat for an actor to pull off. And I think she captures that tension of what she's going to do really, really well. And for as much as I think Bergen is absolutely terrible in this, he is very sinister. Mm -hmm. And I think they capture that tension of being in an abusive relationship superbly. But then, like Ebert says, it just sort of deteriorates into this weird romance come slasher horror film and it feels like a waste or actually what it felt to me like was the director didn't feel the horrors of domestic violence were enough to hold the audience's attention I think you're right it's not really a film solely about domestic violence is it the domestic violence is actually quite a small part of it it's about abuse at the top Mm. and then he becomes something more than an abuser in that he becomes a sort of Hollywood homicidal maniac you know when he goes to kill a mum what's that about i mean yeah maybe a control thing but it's quite a big shift and it is to amp up that drama for the big screen i guess like he spotted a window why not kill her while he's there yeah exactly (laughs) yeah which which seems weird because it feels a bit spontaneous right and he's a guy who is all about the control yeah and also you know there might be questions if they find her quite clearly suffocated i think 
Julia Roberts is quite interesting as an actress because I thought this must have been like one of her first films, but she'd actually, prior to this, she'd made Steel Magnolias, she'd made Mystic Pizza and Pretty Woman, all of which I really enjoyed as a youth. Again, weird films. And then I was like, no, but she's made loads of really good films. And then when I was going over her filmography there was like a real absence of quote-unquote <laughs> actually good films or rather critically acclaimed films, which I've got thoughts on because she is quite good in this, isn't she? She can do the acting. I think she's excellent when she's given the stuff to do and the fact that there's this weird-ass romance plot in them. I mean, this is let's talk about the time frame. So mm. Ben, who... Ben basically looks like Thomas Brodie Sangster, who was the kid in Love Actually... But like he's covered his face in Pritt stick and then rolled around in some yeah. fake fur. It looks like he's it looks like he's doing a shit impression of Wolverine. Yeah. It's very strange. He's got very distracting hair. But he's <laughs> he's he's also quite predatory and is he sort is. of forcing himself on her as a romantic partner when what she needs is a friend. And so my question of time frame is at one point her hair moves back and she's still got the cut mm. on her head that Martin inflicted when he thumped her and she crashes into an ornament what is the time frame between her leaving martin and leaving laura and becoming sarah to her getting involved with someone because i think she just needs a mate rather than uh and i'm doing the universal sign for banging yeah that kind of mate no i mean i agree and and i did want to talk about the relationship with ben because i thought and I, I imagine this is actually common in victims of domestic abuse, but I don't think it's what I was supposed to think. I think I was supposed to think that he was romantic and a really nice guy and he was going to, like... Oh, he's white knight. Treat yeah, her definitely. right and, and all of that stuff. But I felt like she had just substituted one abusive relationship with another because he's very persistent and he's quite creepy at times. And <laughs> I wondered, like the way he creeps up on her when she's taking the apples and he's like, oh, whoa there, little lady. She's got her dress hitched up with the apples. She's using it as a basket for the apples that she's sort of stealing off him. And he's taking them out of her skirt, which I thought was like a really kind of... That's quite intimate, isn't it? Because he's, he's quite, quite, he's quite near the, the crown jewels there. So it's like, <laughs> that's obviously not supposed to be creepy. It's the amount of times he surprises her. And I was like, stop fucking creeping up on her. Also, yeah, Ben, that is a very scary knock you've got there. He doesn't knock. He kind of... And then she goes, oh, sorry, you scared me. Yeah, that would scare anyone. I put, he is incredibly pestery and an aggressive dancer. He's such an aggressive dancer. It is such a weird scene. But Jen, I think we both have to be honest with ourselves and which of us wouldn't be wooed by a hat montage. The hat montage was great. Do you know what? The bit that really stood out to me in that hat montage is when she's wearing like, a giant tuxedo with like basically nothing else on and she's kind of grooving a bit and I thought this seems to me very out of character <laughs> like very out of touch with yeah. what you're currently going through sort of looking at the screen going did I start watching a drama about domestic violence yeah. because I appear to be watching some amdram why is there a hat montage I'd totally forgotten about the hat montage I know, me too. and it's interesting that that's a bit that stood out for you because it was very much when she put on the terrifying doll's face <laughs> what was your favorite uh, hat that she wore i liked the shakespearean sort of countess hat that was my favorite as well we've mentioned him in passing but i'll 
also wanted to talk about Patrick Bergen. Listeners, he's not exactly had an illustrious film career. You might have seen him in EastEnders as Irish gangster Aidan, and he is actually Irish, by the way, who tediously twatted around with Phil Mitchell in a, his tedious, newfound, gangsterly ways a few years ago. That plot line really fucking irritates me, by the way. Mick, what did you make of him? I actually found him quite terrifying. I mean, he was undeniably shit, but there's one bit, there's one bit that I want to reflect on that I actually think was really well observed. After Laura dies, in inverted commas, when he comes home and he throws the ornament through the window. Because, Mm -hmm. in his own way, he does love Laura, or at least he thinks he loves Laura. And we're sort of talking about toxic masculinity and anger, and he's an angry man, and that would be the only way he would understand to express those emotions, right? Yeah. Whether he loves her or whether he's angry because he's lost something that he considers his possession, yeah. I think is very much up for debate. But yeah, I think he's he's quite sinister. Yeah. And he's quite a sinister-looking man with yeah. his tiny moustache. And uh, yeah, but he's mostly terrible. He looks like a shit magnum. And uh, I don't mean the ice cream. <laughs> and fun fact, Patrick Bergen actually has no eyelids which is why he never blinks. <laughs> Did you notice, Jen, that he has his own theme tune as well? Like oh, the sexy jaws. music. <laughs> so sexy. No, but he puts it no. on for, oh. them, for them to bang, doesn't he? I still don't think you should call it the sexy music. <laughs> it's not sexy. That's why I've written it down, the sexy in quotation marks music, and then written, wow, oh, wow. <laughs> because it's not very sexy at all, but that is it's what angry. He... It's angry yeah. music, and that's what he likes to listen to for the banging. Can I be a little bit Hannah Dunleavy before yeah. we get to the the ending? Because obviously she's not here. Sure, but I I was really distracted. I mean, I'm not sure what I was distracted from because plot would seem a sketchy word to use, but by what was happening by some of the really sort of odd and obvious plot developments that were massive holes right yeah. so particularly when she's like cutting her hair in the bathroom and throwing a wedding ring down the toilet it's just like come on he lives in this house for fuck's sake like don't do that ah, but and she also, wiped the floor you see her wipe the floor but yeah I, yes. I did immediately think like what about all the sand you're gonna bring in totally but like i was like why hasn't he used that toilet and again that was a time frame question i was like how long has he not been to the toilet for? This is weird. Uh, I've just written in capitals. What is the time frame? <laughs> um, and yeah, how? Wh- why did he rearrange her cupboards? It's a, I know it's a control thing, mm. but again, he seems to have a focus, and that is like to get her back and kill her or kidnap her or whatever his plan is yeah. that gets foiled. But yeah, why did he go? Oh, do you know what though? While I'm here, I'm just going to go and check in her cupboards. I thought that was just supposed to be sinister, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to let you know I'm here. But then how did how did he have the time to do that between her going upstairs to turn the bath off and she comes down and you think she might hear him, like, moving those cans around. But yeah, no, you're right. It doesn't really know what it wants to do, does it? I don't know. May, I, I guess maybe just to fuck with her head a little bit, which I suppose is abusive behaviour, but it is a bit like bogeyman kind of shit rather yeah, than like... Yeah, totally. So that is obviously in the run-up to the ending which we have to talk about a little bit. Spoiler alert, guys, doesn't end well for Patrick Bergen and his weird eyelids. <laughs> because the thing that I thought as she um, shoots him in self-defence was that, oh, God, like, well, you know, that's a fucking, that's a nightmare for her because now there's going to be police, there's going to be a court case, it'll be awful. Poor Laura slash Sarah. And then I remembered that you can kind of kill people in America without repercussions. 
Because what she actually says to the police when she phones them while holding Martin at gunpoint is, come quickly, I've just killed an intruder. Oh, she gets the upper hand right at the end there. And it is, it's quite a satisfying moment, actually, even though it has descended into some weird horror slasher film. Although I could have done without him. Like, he took, like, 26 bullets or something stupid and then we're still, like, lumbering towards her like a zombie. Yeah. And then, obviously, he's dead now. Is he? No. Um, and then, he, yeah, he was dead. And then it just ends. That's just it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about that. So a report has just been published by Centre for Women's Justice in conjunction with the campaign group Justice for Women. The report is called, it's quite a long title, Women Who Kill, How the State Criminalises Women We Might Otherwise Be Burying. And it examines how the criminal justice system in England and Wales deals with women who were driven to kill men who abuse them. And it is very much not a Laura slash Sarah situation. Mm. The report examined 92 cases, most from the previous 10 years, and found that even though most of the women were victims of domestic violence or coercive control by the deceased, just six were acquitted on grounds of self-defence. 40 were convicted of murder and 42 of manslaughter. So, yeah, it wouldn't have just been the end for Laura Sarah. I'd be interested to read that report. Well, you can read the full report at centreforwomensjustice.org.uk and it is well worth your time. There are loads of other key findings that relate to how the criminal justice system just systematically fails women like Laura Sarah. In this country, Laura would have phoned the police and the police would have done absolutely fuck all about it. I'm sure that's unfair, actually. I'm sure on lots of occasions they do something about it, but you do hear stories every now and again of women who have repeatedly called the police to report their abusive husbands and yet... And yet they still end up dead. And actually, even in Sleeping with the Enemy, she does say, I called the police and they said they could like take out a restraining order. And I just thought there's no point. It won't work. And yeah, that is fair enough from her absolute in the midst of it experience to know that wouldn't work and to be correct on that. Yet it would be used against her when it came to a trial. You didn't take police advice. There's only one way to pep me up now, Jen, and that is a hat montage. <laughs> okay, not a problem. I've got a few in the cupboard over there. Just give me a minute. Wow, it's Jen. That one's ridiculous. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Jen's put on one of those hats that's actually got two beer cans on either side of it and then straws that make her look like she's wearing glasses and she's just, just, she's just drunk now. supping on iron brew and um, Vimto. Iron brew? So, Mickey, hat montages aside, or, you know, bring, the, bring them into your ruling, if, if you will, how do we feel about this film? Are we rating or are we dating? I think it's dated. I would agree with that, yes. I think it's a, a very wasted opportunity as well, but, you know. But for 1991, I imagine this was probably, like, even vaguely progressive at the time. I agree with you, and I think it definitely got a conversation going. The fact that 30 years on, we're still having <laughs> these conversations is profoundly depressing, yeah. isn't it? And I think in 30 years' time, we'll probably still be having these conversations. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you're not here next week. I'm it's not. just me and Hannah. Uh, you're, you're, you've got a book to write. I do. Uh, which is very exciting. <gasps> and so Hannah and I, listeners, if you want to watch along with us, are going to be watching Train Spotting. Ooh, well, I'm a bit sad to miss that. You can watch it, Jen. Good you point. are allowed to Good still point. watch it. Thanks. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs>